Welcome to the Zen of Everything, a Zen take on life, love, laughter, and everything else. With Jundo Cohen, a real Zen master. That's me. And Kirk McElhern, that's me, a guy who knows a bit about Zen. Good evening, Jundo. How are you today? I am doing fine, Kirk. How are you? I'm doing really well. You know, I was thinking about our recent episode on Zen books, and I have a question for you that's been kind of itching since the last time we spoke. An itching question. An itching question, yes. At one point, we were talking about an author, and you were saying, oh, yeah, he's on my team. Like, his books are really good because he's on my team. And that made me think that there's something really important in Zen and in Buddhism in particular, which is a lineage. And I want to try and understand that, because if you look at the history of Buddhism, you've got the original Buddhism that started in India, you've got Tibetan Buddhism and Chinese, and then you've got Japanese, and it went mm. underwent changes all the while. But mm. even in Japan, you've got Soto and Rinzai and other schools. And so explain the importance of lineages and why we have to root for our team. Well, first off, I wish I remembered that quote that you just said, because I don't know what was in my head. But I think I, I can guess that I was talking about being a Soto Zen priest. So Soto Zen would be my team. But really... In the no, Buddhas. I think you were talking about a book by Koto Sawaki, and you recommended it because he's ah, on your team. He's my team within Soto Zen. Yes, Soto Zen exactly. also has several flavors. And exactly. the Koto Sawaki Uchiyama, uh, there's kind of a family of teachers there. Yes, that's my team. But really, for the Buddha, the whole universe is our team. There's no one on the opposition because there is no opposition. All of reality is our team. But within that, of course, you know, reality has different flavors. Buddhism has different flavors. Mahayana, which is the northern schools of Buddhism, have their flavors. Zen has its flavors. Within Zen, there's Rinzai and Soto and Obaku. And within Soto, there are different flavors. So within those flavors, yes, I have a team. The it's like the New York Yankees meaning. in the American League and the New York Mets in the National League, right? Yes, but the whole universe is just baseball. That's exactly right. <laughs> we could do the who's on first thing, but let's not. Um, yeah. So, but lineage is important because lineage is the personal transmission from one teacher to a student, and then that student becomes a teacher and transmits to another student, right? Exactly. What happened is the Buddha held up a flower. And Maka Kashapa smiled wordlessly. And from that time, in an unbroken lineage of generation to generation, without a miss, for 2,500 and something, something years, it has come to me through all the greats. Bodhidharma, the sixth ancestor Wei Nung, 
Then it came to Dogen. Then it came to my teacher, Nishiyama. And Nishijima. I've got to remember my own teacher's name. I said Nishiyama. Yeah. He's Nishijima. And then it came to me in an unbroken transmission. That is kind of half propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad the, you pointed that out because there are yeah. certain there are certain periods along the way where it could sort of die out until someone else picks it up, right? Well, uh, a great uh, Zen historian, uh, Barbara O'Brien, came to our Tree Leaf Sangha yesterday, and she was discussing this. And here's the point she made, which I think most uh, Buddhist historians, or historians of Buddhism, I should say, agree. When you get back about a thousand years, the story starts to get really fuzzy. And a lot of the lineage is, shall we say, cut and paste, a, a creation. What happened is that in the Tang and Sung dynasties in China, they were trying to prove their roots back to the Buddha. And they did not have a really good record-keeping system. <laughs> and things uh, of the past were lost in the fog of time. So they basically strung together what's known as a string of pearls. String they of pearls. took various yes, a string of pearls to get back to the Buddha from the up to the Chinese Zen masters. They took names. Some of those names did not even live at the same time. They never met each other. Some of them were not even Zen folks. Some of them might not actually have been anything more than fictional characters. But somehow, pasting them all together as generation to generation, they drew a line back to the Buddha to prove that we go back to the big man, the boss, direct. Why did they do that? Well, in those days in China, they had to prove their legitimacy. And in the ancient Confucian system of China, to have family meant to have legitimacy. So they created a family story. Now, let me get uh, to the good side of this. Yes, uh, back then, uh, getting past a thousand years gets fuzzy. But you know what that also means? That means that for almost a thousand years, the story's pretty good. It actually is a fairly well documented series of generation to generation of people passing this on, keeping the flame burning. And even if we don't know the names of all the people in the distant past, and even if they were not really Zen people, there's another reason they weren't Zen people. Zen didn't exist <laughs> until it well, got to China. Name, yeah, yeah. No, well, you know, Buddhism existed. Yeah. But Zen developed but in did, China. It's... Did Buddhism even exist? It was, what, what, what did they call it back then? What did they call Dharma teachings back then? They didn't call it Buddhism because that word is a creation of Western, um, what was it, missionaries in the 19th century, isn't it? They called it uh, the Cosa Nostra. Arthur, no, that's no. a different, that's a different <laughs> no, they, one. No, it was the teachings of the Buddha, which came in uh, various flavors. And when Indian Buddhism came to the Silk Road and met a little Greek. Actually, Barbara yesterday was talking about the Greek input. There was a little Greek input that came down the Silk Road too. And then when this came to China and met uh, things in China like Taoism and Confucianism and various other Chinese sensibilities that are a little different from the, the Indians, 
the Chinese are a little more earthy and, and life-loving than the Indians. When all that came together, you ended up with Chan. And then it went to Japan and became Zen. But before that, there really was no Zen, so you couldn't have a Zen lineage. But let me get back to the story. If even though we don't know who kept the lineage alive going back to the Buddha, and even though it wasn't really yet Zen, it's our roots too. It's somebody. For example, Kirk, uh, do you know who your great-great-great-grandparents are? Maybe you're, you're one of those people who researches roots, so maybe you do. Um, I, I actually, um, my great-great-grandfather came from Ireland, um, came from Northern Ireland in the 1880s, um, and I actually know about this because I needed to get a birth certificate at one point to claim my Irish citizenship. Um, so okay. I know that my family on one side goes back in Ireland a long way. I don't know how far. Um, okay. On another side, in Germany. Well, let me, in that case, I had a few more greats. Do you know who your great, 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 great grandfather is? Absolutely not. But a, a book that I read on the history of genetics some time ago said that if you go far enough back, everyone is related to everyone. In other words, everyone alive now is somehow a direct descendant from Charlemagne, who came, uh, who was the French king. So... Basically, everyone alive is a direct descendant of the Buddha. Well, that, that's, that's true, too. That's true, too. But a Zen lineage is, is a little different because it really is a tradition that developed but was passed on from generation to generation. So there is, there is, it's a little different from genetics in that sense, in that not everybody is a, automatically a part of the Zen lineage. It's kind of a, a series of straight lines back, but it represents somebody back there who developed this. And the wonderful thing is, these were people who changed it, each in their own mold. Because if you did have the change, it wouldn't have become Zen, and then it wouldn't be, have become what we have now. Every generation says it's faithful to what came before, but every generation changes it a little bit. So Dogen was born and lived in the early 13th century. When did Rinzai live? Rinzai lived. Uh, uh, do I have time to sit here and Google this? Uh, Rinzai <laughs> lived. Wait a second. I think the seventh century. But don't. So before Dogen. Okay. Yes. Yes. And when Dogen came, was that a schism from the single strand of of Zen at the time? Even if it wasn't called Zen back then. Absolutely not, because Dogen was faithful to teaching exactly what the Buddha taught, which was exactly what all the other Zen masters taught, except, of course, Dogen put his own twist on things. So the answer is, yes, Dogen made his own thing. And, and even Ridzai. It's as if the original teachings are ice cream, and every flavor of ice cream is faithful to ice creamness, and Dogen just happened to be the coffee ice cream that came around in the 13th century. I, I compare it to learning to play music. You know, when you're uh, training to be a Zen priest, you have a teacher who's like your music teacher, and it's the same piano we're playing. It's, that piano is called the Dharma, the universe, reality, right? And your teacher shows you his style and how to play, and he criticizes you. You should play in the way that he wants you to play. But then after a while, you're on your own, and you make your own music, and it's never exactly like your teacher. Place. And that's how we went from having Bach and then went up to Chopin and then we ended up in jazz at some point. It's the same thing uh, with uh, Buddhism. 
where Dogen took what he found in China, but put his own musical spin on things. Okay, so that's the big picture lineage. But going back to Koto Sawaki, you, when you said he's on our team, then we get more recent lineages that have separated, right? Right, right. right. Well, the, you know, the big thing is in, in the modern Zen world, Japanese Zen, is the difference between Rinzai Zen and Soto Zen. Especially in Japan, Rinzai Zen and Soto Zen became quite distinct in their approaches. Rinzai Zen tended to be in the capital, quite uh, closely connected to the political elites there, quite uh, erudite and uh, well-versed in the high culture of poetry and tea. And it focused on what is known as koan introspection Zen, where people sit pour themselves, lose themselves into a koan, reveal the essence of that koan, and that is their way of training. And I have to say, I'm speaking as an outsider there. Right. And I'll have a link in the show notes to an episode we did discussing koans. And in Soto, uh, it was Dogen's way. It was a little more out in the countryside, not in the capital. Uh, A little more for, how to say, the provincial people. And it emphasizes just sitting, shikantaza, which is sitting in which sitting is the point of sitting as a Buddha sitting. This is the big uh, division, shall we say. They're both approaching the same thing, which is this piano, the same music, but our way of playing is a little different. And of course, my team is I'm Soto. But you're not just Soto. You're Soto... Um, as you said, Kurosawaki, Uchiyama, etc., etc. Yes. Now, my teacher, whose name I should get right this time, Nishijima yes, Roshi, was yeah. influenced uh, by uh, Kurosawaki. That was his first teacher, who was a man who grew up on the wrong side of the tracks in Japan. He really was known for being kind of rough and tumble and saying things as they were. And he loved just sitting. He said, Zen is good for nothing, especially Zazen, sitting meditation. Good for nothing. We sit to sit, not to get anything out of it. And that's what he's famous for. Yes, that's the team we're on. Is this a typically Japanese thing, the lineages? Because So here's an example. I've been playing shakuhachi for a couple of years. Um, this is an instrument that until the, what was it, the late 19th century, was used by the Fuke sect of Buddhist monks um, as a tool to attain enlightenment. And then the Fuke sect was um, banned during the, was it the Meiji Restoration? I'm not really good on Japanese history. Um, and Shakuhachi sort of redeveloped. In Shakuhachi, there's more than a dozen schools. There's the Kinko, there's the Myoan, there's the yeah. Tozan. Um, and so I'm studying with um, a teacher who is in a school called Zenzabo. Um, and it seems like every good player wants to create their own school, like like their own guild. Is that a typically Japanese right. thing? I think it's more pronounced in uh, Japan for cultural reasons than in uh, China, for example, where things tended to get a little more mixed up. 
and and definitely in the West where things are really messed up. Buddhism has come here and it's become really eclectic. You know, people one minute listening to the Dalai Lama, and the next minute they're listening to one of the Thai teachers, and then they're doing a little Zen. And it's you find some people like me, I, I tend to be a Soto guy, right? But even I'm taking a little bit from borrowing from the South Asian traditions, and I'm influenced by listening to to people outside my tradition. So in the West, it's getting more mixed up. But the Japanese, yeah, they tend to stick to their family and their school and their teacher's way a little more. That's right. But then they create their own schools as a way of, what would be the word, uh, establishing themselves as an authority. Is that it? Well, there's a joke that's, uh, it's not a joke because it's completely true. You go to any Zen group in Japan and they'll tell you, this is the way it's been done for a thousand years and more, but it's never the way they do it next door at the other <laughs> temple. So even if I'm a Soto uh, guy, the guy, the Soto guy down the street is not doing things exactly the way. And nobody knows why we do some things. You know the, the story about the tying up the cat? And there's a beautiful story that has uh, got a lot of truth to it. So they were trying to sit uh, Zen meditation one time, and this cat kept coming in and jumping on people and was getting quite annoying. So somebody said, would somebody please tie up the cat so he's not bothering us during Zazen? So week after week, they would tie up the cat and they would all go meditate. And this went on for years. Finally, the master died, and nobody could remember why they were tying up the cat. <laughs> Why were they tying up the cat? But this was important. You had to tie up the cat for Zazen. And then the cat died. So they went out and they got another cat because you had to tie up the cat in order to have Zazen. And a new tradition was born where for generations, you sit Zazen, you tie up a cat. This is uh, how all the traditions, uh, some of them are you know, quite practical. But I've gone to many a Zen temple and I've said to the, the priest there, why do you ring the bells just that way? And nobody really knows. No one can remember. It's lost in history, but that's how we ring the bells. And we don't ring the bells like the guys down the street. Their <laughs> bell ringing is wrong. Our way is the way you ring the bells for a thousand years. Like that. <laughs> well, it's not that different than other traditions. I mean, look look at Christianity with all of the different... Sure. They don't call them lineages, but all of the different sects over the years that have... Some are major and some are minor... Um, I'm just wondering, though, is do we pay more of an importance in Zen on that personal transmission? Um, if you're a Christian priest, you're not getting a transmission from a bishop, are you? Um, it's more of an institutional transmission. Well, it's it serves a purpose in Zen. It's an old apprenticeship system where you're uh, like learning to be a blacksmith. Supposedly you have a master blacksmith who's teaching you the art of forging metal. And it's the same in traditional Zen. So hopefully if your teacher is someone with a good reputation and has experience, he passes down to you. And uh, when he gives his stamp of approval, that's some kind of certification that someone with a good reputation and experience has certified this new person as uh, a legitimate master in their own right. And that's the that's the, the, the purpose it serves. And uh, frankly, if the master is not so good and the student's not so good, it's not <laughs> worth the paper it's written on, which happens quite quite a bit. You actually do get a certificate, don't you? 
Oh, I got lots of papers and all kinds of, uh, yeah, things that, uh, yeah, sure. There are all kinds of secret ceremonies and we got handshakes and, and, uh, and a little pinky shake. I, no, I'm just kidding about that. There's no secret handshake, but, uh, I don't think there is. Maybe there, actually there is kind of a secret handshake, but I can't tell you, you know why it's a secret, (laughs) but, uh, you know, I've seen many cases where the teacher is excellent and the student is terrible. I've seen many cases where the teacher was so-so, but the student is lovely. Uh, I've seen many cases where they're both terrible and many cases where they're both lovely. So it's not a guarantee of anything, but it's something. And, you know, you just got to look at the particular teacher and see, let them prove themselves. It's like piano. If, if they're playing the piano in tune again, you hear it with your own ear. And um, that's what uh, Zen is. It's kind of uh, music. You are one of several people who got, is it called Dharma Transmission from uh, Nishijima? Yeah. Um, And you and the others will eventually give Dharma Transmission to other people. Um, I've already given it to a couple of people, yes. and, And this kind of like makes it spread is one of the factors that establishes the prominence of a lineage, the number of people you give Dharma transmission to? In other words, you have a lot of kids, so um, you're more influential? Yeah, well, this is not a franchise, so you don't want to do that. I mean, uh, there <laughs> there have been uh, guys out there who thought, oh, I'll just give Dharma transmission to 50 people. And what you end up is uh, with the 38 people who probably never going to speak to you again and, and are going to be, you're going to regret the day you, you did that. So you want to be concerned with quality, of course. So you don't want to give uh, Dharma transmission to someone unless you can trust them. And I have, I have very particular standards. I want to know that they truly understand this path. I want to know that uh, they're going to be helpful to other people. But mostly, I want to know they're good, honest, caring, dedicated people who are going to be in this year in, year out for for the rest of their life on this earth. That's what I'm looking for. So it's not a matter of quantity at all. So do you think of yourself as part of a lineage? Is this something that you're very conscious of? Yeah, okay. And do you not want to create a Jundo Cohen lineage? Oh, I'm going to be dead. I won't care. Yeah, no, <laughs> no. I, I, you know, uh, I, I, I tell you something. My, my reputation's ruined because of uh, doing podcasts and YouTube. Yeah, I know. I'll, I'll explain that. You know, if you're dead in the it, old days, it all days, went downhill once you started doing podcasts. Because they're going to have a re- permanent record of what an idiot I am. This is the thing. In the old days, if you died, they immediately scrubbed up your image. They, they forgot all your bad qualities and you were turned into a legend. For all intents and purposes, for the rest of any time anyone cares, they're going to turn on this podcast and realize, listen to this guy. So uh, my reputation shot just by being here today. Okay, sorry about that. Um, Is there a lot of give and take between different lineages? And again, I'm not talking about Soto and Rinzai, but I'm talking about the different Soto teams. I know you definitely communicate with players. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Do do you have draft picks every year or something? I need like a guy in left field, so I I go to the to the the type the Thai school down the street. No, uh, no, the only time that people. switch lineages if they can't usually if they can't stand their teacher anymore 
and it's like a divorce. And there are actually rules about this. You don't want to you don't want to do it too easily. So if someone really needs, they will uh, break off the relationship with their old teacher, and there's a waiting period. There should be, and then they will go with an, uh, a new teacher. And there are diploma mills out there. And I I, I kind of uh, jumped on a guy this week who, with all the best intentions, I, I'm sure he he did it, and uh, the teacher was uh, legitimate, but. He, he he basically got a certificate from someone he's never met, and he did it just by exchanging emails. No, it, you know, it, 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 there are diploma mills like anything. Yeah, there's the what is it? The university? Should we say the university of something that you you write away in five bucks? Yeah, they and have websites. You, you, give, you give them fifty bucks, you get a degree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to be careful about that. But so, but that reinforces the importance of the lineage. That if we know that the lineage has come down through certain people, we know that there's a certain value. And if someone comes with his diploma with the lineage from Joe around the corner behind the bar, we know that it doesn't have the same value. Well, yeah, but uh, let's just uh, remember what the real purpose of the lineage is. And that is the spark, the inspiration, the insight to truly understand something about who we are in this life, the teachings of the Buddha, to have something that is beyond words and to be able to be an example of that and to keep the flame burning to another generation. You know, it's like saying that the marriage is not the piece of paper you get at the city hall. Marriage is the the love that you cannot put words on. Well, that's what uh, real dharma transmission is. So someone says, if you you get dharma transmission, are you an enlightened being? Like, uh, that I'm, if I was an enlightened being, I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Good but, point. But, uh, yeah, no, good point. Not with what you pay. <laughs> but uh, uh, the point is you should have a certain something that you're passing on to the next generation. If you're going to play baseball or you're going to play the piano, you got to know how to catch a ball and work the keys. You know what I mean? So there's got to be something there more than the paper. Getting the baseball hat and a glove does not make you a ball player. Owning uh, uh, you know, a piano does not make you a pianist. You actually got to know how to play. You got to know how to catch and throw a ball. It's the same in Zen. So. Just having Dharma transmission is not enough. There's got to be something there, okay? Okay, thank you, Jindo. Where do we go from here? Another thousand years into the future, I hope. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in iTunes or in your favorite podcast app. Please give us a rating. Tell your friends. You can check out past episodes at our website, zen-of-everything.com. And if you want Jundo to answer your questions, send us an email at podcast at zen-of-everything.com. Thanks for listening.